Would you open your Bibles with me to 1 Kings chapter 17? We're going to read the first 16 verses, and then I'm going to read a couple of verses out of Luke 24. So you might want to do this. You might want to take your bulletin insert and slip it into uh, Luke 4 so that you can turn quickly there and then turn back in your Bibles to Luke's uh, 1 Kings 17. While you're turning to these two passages of Scripture, let me just express once again my appreciation to Pastor Bill Vogler for inviting me to be here. This has become sort of an annual trek, and it's always a highlight for my wife Jane and me to be here with you. As he said earlier, uh, we go back a long ways, back when you were still in the school, when John Cook one day called me out of the blue and asked if I would come and uh, speak at a men's retreat, and it's just been a love affair with you folks ever since then. And so it's a delight to be back here on this Sunday morning. 1 Kings chapter 17, the first 16 verses. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here, and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son." For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spake by Elijah. And then if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 4 verses 25 and 26, which is Jesus' commentary on this passage of Scripture. In other words, Jesus' commentary on this incident that occurred in the life of Elijah and in the life of this widow. In verse 25, Jesus says, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. 
And now you can turn in your Bibles back to First uh, Kings 17 and leave them open at that place. The month that I turned 30 years of age, I was asked by the navigators to take a three-year, one-term assignment in Europe to be the administrative assistant to the Europe Director of the Navigators. The only problem was, at age 30, having just turned 30, I was still single with no prospects in sight. And the idea of going to Europe and sort of, so to speak, being out of circulation for three years (laughs) and uh, then coming back and having to start from scratch all over again uh, was not particularly appealing to me, and so I really struggled with whether or not I should accept that assignment. And in the midst of this time of going back and forth and struggling, uh, I came across Hebrews 11, verse 8, which says that by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out to a place which he would afterward receive for an inheritance, he obeyed and he went out not knowing where he was going. And the thought that struck me from that passage of Scripture was that by faith Abraham obeyed and he went out not knowing where he was going. And the idea came to me that faith is often can, uh, faith can often be described as obeying God, that is, doing what either God has clearly commanded in Scripture or doing what you believe he is leading you to do, obeying him and then trusting him for the results. And, of course, you can see the obvious application to my situation that uh, if I did indeed feel that God was leading me to take that three-year assignment in Europe, that I would obey him and then I would just simply trust him for the results in this case, for marriage at a a later time. Though this was the first time that God had used that verse of Scripture in my mind, it was not uh, the first time that I had applied that principle of obeying God and trusting him for the results. About eight years prior to that, when I was a young Green Navy officer out uh, in the Far East during the Korean War, I was in the amphibious forces, and uh, if you know anything about the amphibious forces, the mission is to put the troops on the beach and then, uh, in appropriate time, take things off the beach. And this was not an actual war incident. It was a training exercise. But we were putting troops on the beach, teaching them how to, teaching our people how to take them in in the small boats and uh, go onto the beach and then Uh, After a certain time of training, we had to bring those troops back off the beach onto our ships. And we were in this part of the training operation at that time. We were recovering the troops off the beach. And as as the deck officer, it was my responsibility to oversee that part of the operation for our particular ship. Now, the Navy has very specific instructions of how you do things in various situations. The, the only problem is the people that sit at their nice desk back in the Pentagon or someplace uh, write these theoretical instructions, and oftentimes uh, you cannot apply them in real life. Oftentimes you have to improvise, and this was one of those days. The seas were very heavy, the ship was rolling like this, and as we would bring those small boats that had a platoon of soldiers, uh, 32 soldiers, in alongside the ship and uh, connect onto it so that we would hoist the boat aboard the ship. The boats would, first of all, they would slam into the side of the ship and then they would go way out. And uh, so uh, I had to improvise and go to plan B as far as bringing those boats with the soldiers in them back aboard the ship. And it just so happened 
that in one of those instances, there was a mechanical failure. A, a, a cable broke. And so actually the boat, as it's coming up like this, all of the, the cable was attached to the front of the boat, and all of a sudden the boat just went like this, and we dumped 32 soldiers into the sea. Fortunately, they had their life preservers on, so none of them were lost, but we lost all of their gear, and we lost a lot of our own ship's gear in that situation. So naturally, uh, this called for a report when we got back to Yokosuka, Japan, and as the officer who was responsible for the operation, uh, it was my duty to go ashore to the uh, squadron office and to report this incident. I went over well knowing that I had improvised at that time and that I was operating outside of the book. Now, the fact that I was doing that had nothing to do. It was purely metal fatigue that had occurred. But uh, nevertheless, it's the kind of thing in which you can get nailed on that even though you might not be doing something uh, that what you were doing didn't contribute to the accident, nevertheless, you were doing something wrong. And so I faced the fact, would I try to, to sort of bury that fact that we were operating outside of the book, or would I be completely honest? And so in this case, I had to obey God to be honest and to trust him for the results. As it turned out, both of these situations uh, turned out very well. Um, for as far as going overseas, being single, I'm happy to tell you that uh, the day, three years later, that I arrived back in the States, I had dinner with the young lady who seven months later would become my wife. And so that worked out very well. In the case of the boat accident, uh, the investigating officer focused entirely on the, the metal fatigue, the mechanical failure, and the fact that we were operating outside of the book never became an issue. And so... This is two cases where I obeyed God, trusted him for the results, and the results came out well. But we shouldn't get the idea that it's always going to work out that way. I have a pen pal, I call him, uh, because this man wrote me from back in Delaware. He was a banker, an executive in a banking firm, and for 10 years he had been committing some illegal procedure. I do not know what it was. But whatever it was he was doing, he was so skillful at doing it, then when finally the bank examiners began to go into the records, he had to show them what he had done wrong. They could not find out what he had done wrong. But after this 10 years, he became a believer. And as a Christian, he knew that he needed to be honest, that he needed to come forward and admit what he had been doing and suffer the consequences. And so he obeyed God and he trusted him for the results. In his case, the results was a year in prison and be forever barred from the banking industry. But I'm sure if you would talk to that man today, he would say that he obeyed God, he trusted him for the results, and even though the results ended up with a prison sentence and being forever barred from the banking, that he's glad that he did and he would have it no different. We never lose by obeying God, even though the results may not be as favorable as we would ask for. But the principle that I want us to get this morning is that faith can often be described as obeying God and trusting him for the results, because you will see from time to time in your life that God in his providence brings you into a situation where obedience to him appears to have uh, the possibility of a very negative impact in your life. And it's at that point that you need to decide 
whether or not you are going to obey God and trust him for the results or whether or not you are going to kind of take things into your own hand and try to preserve your life or your reputation or your finances or something like that. And so oftentimes we can describe faith as obeying God, doing what we believe that God wants us to do, either because he has expressly directed us in his word or because the Spirit of God has somehow led us to do something that we believe God wants us to do. And so in those instances, we obey God and we trust him for the results. Now, you might wonder, what does 1 Kings chapter 17 have to do with this? Because I started out with uh, Hebrews 11.8, By faith Abraham obeyed God. And the reason I want us to go to 1 Kings 17 is because I want to make a specific application from this chapter, an application that I made myself many years ago in my own life, but I believe is very, very relevant to the day in which we live for many of us. The story, as I read it, is that um, there was a famine in the land because God was punishing uh, the nation uh, because of their disobedience Uh, through King Ahab, and so God had miraculously fed Elijah out by the brook Cherith. Uh, He caused the ravens to uh, bring bread and and meat to him each morning and each afternoon. Uh, Raven is a member of the Crow family, so it's not exactly the waiter that you'd want at your best restaurant here in in, uh, Lawrence. But uh, God worked this miracle, not only in causing the ravens to bring the bread and the meat without first eating it, but to bring it in a condition that was fit for Elijah to eat. So God purely worked this miracle. And then God changes the situation. And so in verse 8 or 9, he says to Elijah, I want you to go to Zarephath because I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, the only problem is God had not said anything to the widow. God says, I've commanded a widow there to feed you, but he hadn't told the widow. He hadn't said to the widow, uh, in a couple of days, there's going to come a man. He's my prophet. He's my man. And I want you to take care of him. She knew nothing about this. And so Elijah goes to Zarephath, and he comes to the gate of the city, and this lady is out gathering sticks. And so he says to her, uh, bring me a cup of water. And she readily does this because this is uh, very consistent with Near Eastern hospitality. And as she's going to get the cup of water, he, he said to her, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. This is verse 12. I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Now, the writers of Scripture are masters of understatement. And I want you to put yourself, try to imagine yourself in this situation. Elijah has asked this lady for something to eat, for a morsel of bread, and she says, um, I don't have anything. I just have a little bit of, of oil and a little bit of flour. I'm going to prepare this last piece of bread, and my son and I are going to eat it, and we're going to die. Now, if I had been there, I would have said, I think I've got the wrong widow. <laughs> but Elijah didn't say that. Notice what Elijah said in verse 13. Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. 
Now, again, if I had been there, I probably would have said something like this. Well, I, I appreciate the fact that you're down to your last meal. So am I. Uh, could I just sort of uh, share that last meal with you? You know, could you just kind of make it stretch just a little bit so that you and your son and I could all have a part of it? But this is not what Elijah said. Notice what he said. First, bring me a little cake and... Uh, I'm sorry, first make a little cake for me and bring it to me and afterward you and your son may eat. Now, isn't that a discourteous statement? I mean, can you imagine this lady has said, we're down to our last meal? And he says, that's okay. Just, first of all, bring me something to eat. And then verse 15 says, she went and did as Elijah said. Again, she didn't say, didn't you just hear what I said? I said we were down to our last meal. And now you have the audacity to say to me, give you something to eat first, and then what's left, I and my son can have? But she doesn't say that. It said, the scripture says, she went and did as Elijah said. Now, earlier on, I said, God had not said anything to the widow. But here, God does say something to the widow. It's not in the text, but God prompted the widow to have faith. Faith always comes as a gift of God. And God directed that widow. God gave that widow the faith to do as Elijah said. She did that which was totally contrary to her own self-interest of herself and her son. She did as Elijah said. She went and she baked the bread and she first of all gave something to him and then she and her son partook. And then here is the result. She went and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So God performed a miracle. He kept every day replenishing the flour and the oil so that it never ran out for however long this famine lasted. Now, Jesus comments on this in Luke chapter 4, the two verses that we read. And Jesus says this, there were many widows in the days of Elijah. There were many widows in Israel. But Elijah was only sent to one, to this widow in Zarephath. She was a Gentile. In fact, she was probably a Canaanite. And you remember that the Canaanites were enemies of uh, the Jewish people, of the Is Israeli people. And she was probably a Canaanite, but for sure she was a Gentile. And Jesus was saying that in God's sovereign choice, he passed by all of the widows, the needy widows that Elijah could have gone to, and he sent her to this Gentile woman, not to feed Elijah, but to feed her. And that's the message I want us to get today. God sent Elijah, and God had Elijah say, First, bring to me, and after you have eaten, after I have eaten, then you and your son can eat. Because I want us to see that God sent Elijah to the widow, not to feed Elijah, but to feed her. And he chose to do this through exercising her faith, through bringing her into a position 
for she had to obey God as the word of God was given to her through the prophet of God. She had to obey God and then to trust him for the results. And as she did this, as she obeyed God and trusted him for the results, God worked this miracle and he provided for her and her household. Could God have provided for her another way? Of course. He had already provided for Elijah uh, by the ravens out at the brook Cherith. God absolutely doesn't need us. He has the power and the wisdom and the skill to provide in whatever way he chooses. And I, I, I believe that God has put this passage in the text and God arranged those circumstances so that we could see the contrast before the, the, between the miraculous feeding by the ravens and the miraculous feeding that he did with the widow in order that we might learn that he absolutely doesn't need us. But we need him. And God wants us to learn to obey him and to trust him for the results. And God often, or I should say, from time to time, he puts each of us in situations where we know what we should do to obey him, but the results, the prospects of obeying him look rather grim. And so we wrestle with the fact whether or not we are going to obey God, and God wants us to obey him and trust him for the results. Now I want to make a specific application of this this morning for this reason, that recently I read an article which stated that professing Christians in the United States give less than 3% of our income to God every year. And I was troubled by that statement, and I thought, Lord, I would like to address that situation. I'd like to be used of you to do something about it in a small way, in an individual congregation, something like this. And I'm, I'm coming in as a guest here this morning to do this because apparently many people today among Christians think that they cannot afford to give or at least they don't care to give more than two or three percent a piddly amount you might say tipping God in fact we don't even do that when we tip the waiter or the waitress at the local restaurant it would be an insult for us to do that kind of a thing and yet this is the way we do God but I'm sure that many people believe I cannot afford to give more. And if you are here today and you're in that situation, I want to say to you that I understand how you think because I've been there. In 1955, the navigators asked me to come on the staff at the headquarters office in Colorado Springs to be in charge of a particular department in the office up until that time, I'd been working as a volunteer with the navigators in the military ministry in San Diego and had been working as an engineer in the aircraft industry. I was still single. This was before I went to Europe. I was single, and as a young single engineer, I was giving about half of my income uh, to the Lord's work every month. And I say that not to pat myself on the back because being single, I really didn't need the money. It was no great sacrifice for me to give 50% of my income. And the only reason I tell you that is to draw the contrast with what I'm about to tell you. I went to uh, the Navigator office, and in those days, if you were single, you lived on the property there where the office was. And uh, so we lived in Navigator housing, and we ate in the central dining room in the building we call the castle. Some of you have been there, and you know the situation. And then we received, in addition to our room and board, we received 
the princely sum of $11 a week. Now, that was quite a shock to my economic system to going from the salary of of an engineer to $11 a week plus the room and the board. And so my reaction to that was, I cannot afford to give out of this $11. And so after all, I've come here and I'm serving at a very sacrificial level. You know, I mean, compared to what I had been making as an engineer, that was, I felt indeed quite a sacrifice. And so I thought, God will just accept my sacrificial service as my giving. This went on for some weeks, and I don't know how God got my attention, but I realized that this was probably not pleasing to God, and so I I knew that I had to do something about it. Well, the navigators had told us that they deemed the uh, monetary value of our room and board to be about $15 a week. Remember, this is in 1955. And so I thought $15 a week and then $11 cash, that's $26 uh, in value that I received either in kind or in cash. And so I decided that I would give out of my $11, $3 a week. Now, I want to assure you that my $3 a week did not make even a ripple in the economy of God's work. But I needed to give. I had $8 left for toothpaste and haircuts, and I have to pay as much for a haircut as you guys do. (laughs) These kinds of things. And then I'd come from Southern California, from San Diego, and out there you don't need a heavy coat, and so winter was coming on, and I decided that I needed a top coat, and so I went downtown, and I was looking in the window of a men's clothing store, and I saw a cheap top coat. Now, you all know the difference between cheap and inexpensive. Uh, you know, inexpensive is you get a good price. Cheap means it's not very well made. Uh, this was a cheap top coat, but it was only $25. And uh, so I was praying for $25 to buy the coat. Pretty soon, I received in the mail a check for $25. But I also received in the very same mail a, a financial appeal from a mission organization that I was very interested in and wanted to give toward. And as I read their appeal and I thought about their financial need and my need of the coat, I concluded that their need was greater than mine, so I sent the $25. Still no top coat. A couple of weeks later, I received another letter, again with a check in the mail, for $25. This time it was from a missionary in Korea that I had been giving to when I was in the Navy and then as I was working as an engineer. But I'd stopped giving to him because it almost cost $3 to send him the $3. (laughs) But he sent a check for $25, and in the note he had the verse from Ecclesiastes which says, Cast your bread upon the waters, and you will find it after many days. Basically, he was saying, you were giving to me all of those months, and now it's my turn to give back to you. He knew nothing about my need, but God did. And God, in some way, in the mysterious way that God does this, laid it upon his heart to send me the $25, and so I got the coat. At that time, this was in the fall of 1955, and just the other day, I took out the memory verse for which I had written, 1 Kings 17:16. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoke 
by Elijah. And when I write scripture verses out on cards, I always put down the date that I write the verse out. And because a lot of times, now, years later, I can go back and review that verse and look at the date and try to think back, well, what were the circumstances that caused me to select that verse to memorize? And I memorized this verse in October 1955, just at the time that God was dealing with me about giving to him, about taking from that small amount, to, to use the figure from 1 Kings 17, taking from that small amount of flour and oil that I would have and first give to God and afterward have something for myself. And so I memorized 1 Kings 17, 16 as God's promise that if I did that, that the barrel of meal would not um, be spent and the jug of oil would not become empty. That's been over 47 years ago, 47 years ago last October, and I'm here to tell you today that that verse has been true all of these 47 years. It's not that we've had a lot of money. We've always had enough. When my wife and I would take the children out to eat out, we always went to Burger King or something like that. We've never had a lot, but we've always had enough. The barrel of meal has not been spent. The jug of oil has never been empty for more than 47 years. I'm embarrassed by the fact that we Christians are giving less than 3% of our income. From the various times, long before the law of Moses, Abraham, when he came back from the, from the uh, rescuing his nephew Lot, and Melchizedek came out to meet him, and the scripture tells us in, uh, that Abraham gave Melchizedek, who was the priest of the Most High God, 10% of the booty that he had acquired in that uh, little warfare. And then later on, his grandson Jacob said to God, if you bless me, I will give to you 10% of all of my income. This is, this is hundreds of years before this was, this was codified in the law of Moses. Now, I don't know what your thinking is here, and that's, but, but I think that this is a good benchmark that we should go with. And I want to say to you that I have no agenda in preaching this message this morning except to address this 3% figure. I know nothing about the financial situation of this church. In fact, uh, soon after I arrived last uh, Thursday, I heard that you had had a, I guess you call it a congregational meeting, and I assumed that you discussed the church budget for the coming year. And the person who said this to me said, stop. I said, stop. I don't want to hear any more. I didn't tell him what I was going to preach on this morning. But I, I didn't want uh, anything that I had to say to be colored by any knowledge of your financial situation in this church. I'm not here to raise money for Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church or for the Navigators for that matter. I'm here to address this issue that professing Christians are giving less than 3% of our income to God. fact is, for all I know, I may be preaching to the choir here this morning. And if you're not familiar with that idiom, that means you're, you're saying to people something that they already know and agree with and are practicing. And if that's true, if I'm preaching to the choir this morning, then hallelujah. And I just affirm you and encourage you to keep on keeping on. But I suspect that there are some who are not part of the choir. There are some who are not doing this. And, and there are some for whom this might be quite a challenge. And you think, 
boy, to, uh, to increase my giving to God's work from what I'm currently doing to 10% of my income, I simply could not afford to do that. And that's the reason I told you my story about my experience back in 1955 of trusting God to give $3 out of 11 and to trust him that he would enable me to live on the rest. And that's the challenge that I would present to you today. And remember, God did not send Elijah to the widow for Elijah to be fed, but primarily so that the widow and her son would be fed. And I believe that that's what God would want to do for you. It's not that he needs your money. And it's not that you are going to get any brownie points with God by giving. Jesus Christ, in his sinless life, in his sin-bearing death on the cross, has already earned all the brownie points that you will ever need before God. Every blessing that you will ever receive from God will come to you through the merit of Jesus Christ and not because you've given or done anything else. Furthermore, I'm not saying give to get. I was talking to a lady recently, and her brother is going through uh, financial difficulty in his business, and she said to him, well, you ought to try tithing. And he said, I tried that, and it didn't work. (laughs) Well, if that's why he tried it, no wonder it didn't work. So I'm not saying give in order to earn brownie points with God, and do not give in order to get but just obey God and trust him for the results and see God provide for you as he provided for the widow and her son. And then I'd like to say a special word to those of you who are students, whether you're university students here at KU or whether you're students in high school, uh, very likely you have a limited income. Some of you um, girls are in junior high, maybe you're just beginning to babysit and you're not even earning $11 a week. And uh, so it hasn't even occurred to you to give out of that. You spend all of that on pizza and hair curlers and things like that. (laughs) But Jesus said at one time, he said, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. Begin small. Begin where you are. If you're just getting a few dollars a week, You get with God and you say, Lord, of these few dollars that I have, wherever it comes from, I want to give this to you. I believe that you are leading me to give this amount to you. And even though I don't think I can afford to give, I want to obey you and trust you for the results. And as I said earlier, after 47 years, I can testify that God is faithful. And I urge you to have the same experience. Shall we pray? Father, so oftentimes our faith is weak. And just thinking beyond the specific money application that I've made, there are other instances in our lives, the ones that I've described from my own experience, where we know what we should do, but the the results of, of obeying you look rather grim, or at least chancy. And I pray that if there are those here today who are wrestling with a situation like that in their own lives, that you would enable them to obey you and to trust you for the results, whatever those results might be. And then specifically, Father, that you would enable all of us to 
to look to you and to consider what we are giving and to see if in our own economic status at this time that our giving is honoring to you. And if it's not, that we might obey you and trust you for the results. And Father, I'm sure that there are many here in the sanctuary this morning that have experienced your faithfulness such as I have. And I, along with them, would want to give you thanks today for your faithfulness through the years. And we pray this and we thank this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much.